There is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was another section of Lyndon Johnson's famous speech on the Voting Rights Act, which we referenced last year when he addressed a joint session of Congress to push for its passage. In this speech, Johnson not only advocated policy, he borrowed the language of the civil rights movement and tied the movement to American history. So there are big issues occupying our attention, including Ukraine and the Supreme Court nomination, But as Lyndon Johnson referenced about the moral imperative of not denying the people the right to vote, let's talk first about what's happening on state voter regulations, some of the stuff that's getting overlooked and continues to be overlooked, but really matters to our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, March 22nd. So let's kick it off with a look at the states. Now, as we talk about state rights, I want to take a moment here because people have been asking about where should they focus and what's happening and what's the kind of likely pattern for what plays out in the states. And the reality is we don't often see a pattern because it's really complex on a state-by-state basis. There's some broad efforts we know about the, you know, kind of Republican efforts of the big lie adherence to pass different voter suppression pieces to politicize the implications and the administration of elections. But what they're able to do, how it moves forward and where it moves forward really depends on each state. So there's questions around whether it's legislative or regulatory or procedural interventions that are possible the authority for managing elections is vested in different offices and state by states. Some secretaries of state are more powerful than others. Some, their state board of canvassers or state boards of elections, or it's county election clerks that have more authority. Uh, There's also the difference between how powerful a state legislature is versus the governor. You have strong gubernatorial states where you often have part-time or volunteer state legislatures, or you have strong legislative states where there's a full-time legislature that has more power on the legislative side. There's also different balances of power in the state courts, how members of the state court system get elected or appointed. And if they are elected, you have a majority of Democrat or nonpartisan, but nominated by Democratic sources, justices on the courts implicates whether you can push for something. Will it stand up to uh, judicial scrutiny? And if it's going to get struck down, do you bother or not? And fundamentally, we also see that state elections are managed by state constitutions, and different state constitutions have different protections for the process of elections. So all of those are reasons why it is so complex. It's why people have been asking me, which states should you I pay attention to? I said, well, we're not really sure because it's a changing on a daily basis. It's also because right now we're seeing such a politicized and polarized moment. The margins matter, shifting by small margins, who's able to vote or who's turning out or how votes get counted really can impact the course of elections, can impact the course of whether you keep the balance of power in a state legislative chamber, whether you keep the balance of power in the U.S. House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. 
So these margins matter. And the last thing, and we'll be talking about this more as we look in the next couple months, is that timing matters. What can be passed or denied, what can be implemented or what will be postponed begins to shift the closer we get to these November midterm elections. We're looking right now as like, will we see the final fair maps get drawn for the midterm elections? Or will state judges start to say, it's too late to change the maps for November. So we'll come back, we'll change the map, but effective for the following election. Is it too late to change the administration of elections or not? What does that look like? I was reading an article earlier this week where there's even worries about getting enough paper to print all the ballots in certain states where there's particular regulations about the type of paper that is needed for printing ballots. Given all of our supply chain challenges because of COVID, can election administration officials get the paper they need? And if you change how the ballot is going to be produced and have to reprint a ballot, will we be able to get enough paper to reprint the ballot in time? Even those small things can affect how an election is administered. And so we start to see that this is why we're looking in really granular detail at some of these things. So one thing um, looking back, I've talked about before, but Texas, we saw in the primary results that primaries themselves did not yield any big surprises in terms of the electoral outcomes. But we now do see the impact of the voter suppression bills that were passed in Texas. In portions of Harris County, the most populous county in the state, black populations were 44% more likely to have their ballots rejected than in heavily white areas. And over 18,000 voters in the largest counties by population, which are the majority black counties in Texas, had their mail-in ballots rejected this year as a result of the new legislation. It's an incredibly higher rate of rejection than has been seen before. And that could be the margin of victory in critical races in Texas. It also gives us some insight of what type of margins and what type of rejections we might see in other states that have followed suit and passed similar restrictive legislation. In Georgia, another place where there's been such intensive HB 1464, which overhauled Georgia elections last year, limiting drop boxes, and it led to the state's current efforts are underway right now to over take over the Fulton County Elections Administration. That's Atlanta. Now there's a second bill, the omnibus bill this year, which would allow for public ballot inspections, which would limit private donations to support the administration of elections, which then if you don't fund them publicly and you've prohibited it privately, actually just handicaps the ability to administer them at all, which amends the number of voting booths, which allows the perhaps the most pernicious is allowing the Georgia Bureau of Investigations to look into claims of election fraud without even a referral from state election officials. So with nobody saying something went wrong, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations can launch its own investigation when it's looking to do that. Well, that new bill has passed the Georgia House and is now expected to be heard in the Georgia Senate this coming week. So ongoing efforts in Georgia. On a brighter note, in Arizona, many bad bills failed. So actually 11 bills died um, on the Senate floor last week. It's the most during one session in recent history. One good bill did move forward and a couple bad bills. The good bill that moved forward, whether it will pass or not, remains to be seen, but would make it easier for people who receive mail ballots but don't return them to cast a regular ballot in person. So you got a mailed ballot, you forgot to fill it out, this bill would make it easier for you to still go and turn up in person and vote 
On the flip side, three bad bills moved forward as well, one requiring proof of citizenship, one limiting the use of drop boxes, and a third that limits early voting on the last weekend before election day. So all these back and forth dances of a little bit better, a little bit worse, make it really problematic. And we know, you know, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, all critical states to the future of our democracy. There's also stuff happening in places that we don't think of as battlegrounds. So in Arkansas last week, a judge actually ruled that four different laws passed in 2021 were unconstitutional and placed a burden on voting. And they said, no surprise, that the defendants who's been concerned about election integrity and insecurity, all of their concerns were based on conjecture and speculation rather than any real evidence. So state judge said, no, you cannot enforce any of those four laws in Arkansas. Utah, another place where we saw actually a mixed set of three bills got passed last week. They're on their way to the governor. Um, on the good side, requirement for at least one drop box in every municipality and expanding protections of the voter address confidentiality program. So this is what keeps the addresses of individual people, individual voters confidential. Um, they're strengthening the protections there. On the downside, like they did in Georgia, they passed a bill to limit the use of private donations to fund elections. Now, these use of private donations would not be a problem if we were robustly funding all of our election systems. But then if we undercut the funding, it creates real problems. So we're going to keep looking at all of this variation across the state. And I keep bringing it up because I think it's something that all of you need to be looking at. Like, what does it look like in my state? How is it playing out? Because these granular and bureaucratic interventions can impact the future of our democracy. But pulling back, we got a little bit of more developments on the U.S. Senate side. The big pieces, Eric Greitens, who's former governor running for the Senate in Missouri, is now being called on to drop out. His ex-wife has now accused him again of abusing her and their son in new testimony that was released last week. He's calling it a political attack, but has a lot of Republicans worried that in a relatively safe red state like Missouri, if Greitens gets the nomination, it could actually put a Senate seat in jeopardy that doesn't otherwise would be expected to be in play. And part of what you've seen is actually now several candidates, including Greitens, starting to bash Mitch McConnell as their kind of tactic. They're trying to split the dynamic and say, we're with Trump, we're against McConnell, McConnell is setting me up. So you've seen Eric Greitens coming out saying he'd vote to get rid of Mitch McConnell. Mo Brooks, who's been the Trump-backed nominee in Alabama, who's also really struggled to get any traction, now bashing McConnell, trying to mobilize the Trump base by bashing a Republican establishment leader. Whether that gets any traction remains to be seen, but these kind of dynamics of the splits in the Republican Party, worth keeping an eye on and worth seeing. Like, you know, the U.S. Senate is going to be very, very close. And so if Eric Greitens gets the nomination and then becomes a weak candidate, you know, who ends up as the nominee in Alabama, I don't expect we'll see another moment like what elected Doug Jones, but things to be watching. And then at the broader level, the kind of big headlines of the week, obviously continued looking at Ukraine and Russia and what it means. You know, Biden's going to be visiting Poland. There have been continued calls for stronger action, for more intervention. There seems to be support right now, but the, also the start of the questioning. Will we descend into what one reporter I was reading earlier, it's called sympathetic indifference, where we had a big push of rallying around to support Ukraine. Will it last longer than another couple weeks? 
is there kind of the long-term will from American people to continue to support the defense of Ukraine and push back against Russia? Biden administration have also been warning about the danger of cyber attacks from Russia. If those happen, what will they be? How will they impact us? All of these dynamics around Russia and Ukraine, both critical for the future of Ukraine and for the Ukrainian citizens there, but also implications for the strength of our democracy and for its impacts on the midterm elections, which impacts the future of our democracy. So keeping an eye on it, but nothing fundamentally shifting this week. Last is, um, as I talked about last week, is the uh, confirmations hearings for Ketanji Brown-Jackson have begun. Questionings begin today for the first time where she will face uh, senators directly. Still those conversations around what are the dynamics of race and racism, gender and sexism in this appointment? What will be the impacts on the midterm elections? Assuming that she gets confirmed, it allows Biden to kind of fulfill a big campaign promise. Republicans worried about how they will manage this and will it paint them even more into the racist corner or not? Can't believe I'm saying that that's the dynamic, but that is the dynamic we're looking at. Also, the other piece that is really getting more traction is Biden's nomination of Judge Jackson, an indication that the kind of shift around how we reform the criminal justice system is the debate around that shifting. You know, there'd been such a hesitation to nominate former public defenders, but putting her into the nomination would shift the Supreme Court on that, may also signal kind of openness for changes around criminal justice reform. Very needed lot of ongoing organizing to help make that happen. But whether that becomes more of a theme or conversation at the national level or in particular states, something to really be keeping an eye on. So that's what I've got for this week's review of developments in our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin. I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care. <laughs>